Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so let's get started. So we're actually continuing with the eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. Uh, when we got to element seven, if you'll notice in Roman, uh, Roman numeral two on your outline, that element seven is uh, the pattern of the first five steps into the kingdom of God in Christ, right? And uh, all New Testament Christians took these steps. Uh, there's no examples in the book of Acts of someone taking longer than about seven days, possibly ten, to go through these steps. And there are certainly examples like in Acts 19 and in Acts 2, where the, in Acts 10 as, as well, where they went through these steps the first day they were a Christian, within hours. And today, uh, many people, most American Christians have been through steps one and two only, and probably have a little bit of step five going on in their life, and, uh, and that sort of thing, uh, and have probably never experienced steps three and four. So uh, we're kind of, we've been teaching on those, we've been focusing a little bit on, on, on step three, and doing a little series on that. I want to go back to what I had skipped on step two. Uh, part of the reason I skipped step two, if you look in your notes there, it says John Weiss, the Everlasting Covenant and Baptism. So on GCF Podcast, there's various categories, and uh, toward the end of them, one of the category is, uh, categories is called um, um, Sermon of the Week, those are mostly John's 1030 sermons, and then the, the last category is called Sunday Bible Study, those are mostly my uh, sermons, and mine are more oriented toward people who are coming out of today's contemporary modernist evangelical Christianity and trying to, to uh, get more serious about studying the Bible and following the Bible and trying to find a biblical Christianity. And that's really kind of what I've devoted myself to for 43 years now, and that's what I teach on, and that's why this the 930 is actually the better meeting for newer people who are just getting oriented toward, uh, you know, we have kind of a culture in evangelicalism that almost everyone comes in thinking they're further along with the Lord than they are. That's just the way it is. And it usually takes one, two, or three years for people to begin to, I had a wonderful meeting with, say, Robbie Johnson the last week or two. We went for a walk, and he said, well, you know, when I came here, having grown up in a Bible-believing Baptist church, it was kind of culture shock. I, it caused me to kind of rethink the Bible and Christianity and so forth. And, uh, you know, John and Leah Gray went through that. Most people who come here go through that. So, um, you know, I would encourage you, that's what our foundational book list that John and Emily put together are for. Some of John's messages are oriented toward that uh, as well. And um, although there's plenty in his for any level of, of uh, understanding that you have, mine, mine are more for beginners, but it's a little bit more for people who kind of have come to realize that you're more of a beginner than you thought you were. <laughs> because that's really kind of like when you're really starting to grow in the Lord is when you begin to realize you're a beginner. And uh, so that's what I'm shooting for. So anyway, back to, to water baptism. This is certainly not going to, I'm not going to recover some of the stuff that John covered now, uh, I started to talk about where to find these. This one is both under 
his uh, sermon of the week, and it's under a special category that we that's just called messages on baptism. And it was such a good message, I had him repeat it with some differences uh, adjusted to it the second year. So it's on there twice. Uh, because of iTunes format, they're backwards in terms of chronology. So the more the first one is you have to scroll down a little further to get to and listen to the first one first. Uh, it will help you understand water baptism. I'm hopefully going to help us understand water baptism today in terms of something that we've taught both in the Kingdom of God series. If you remember that series, chapter 3 of the Kingdom of God series was about 15 weeks, and it was called Major Biblical Themes. And then those of you who went through are going through the Restoration, the Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity series at Wright State realized that we uh, spent the entire year last year on how to take Bible study to a further level and how to live all scriptures inspired by God. And one of the things we looked at is the eight ingredients of all biblical covenants. So some of you already know this teaching. If you don't know this teaching, I've relisted them on the page here, and we're going to cover them briefly today. And uh, if you can kind of train yourself to start looking for this, uh, also at Wright State, we uh, spent eight weeks doing uh, eight major covenants of the Bible, and we showed each of the covenants, starting with the covenant of Adam, or sometimes called the Adamic covenant, sometimes called the Dominion covenant. We started with that one, then we went to the covenant of Noah in the, in the Noah covenant, on through uh, Abraham and so forth, and we showed how each of the covenants had all eight ingredients. And all covenants, from even the marriage covenant, has all eight ingredients. And water baptism is best understood as uh, a symbol and sign and ceremony of celebration that enters into the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And so... Um, let's uh, jump down on your page. I'm going to try to tie in. I actually uh, had John send me the baptismal service we use, and I condensed it down by just changing type styles and sizes to uh, from four pages to two, because I always get everything on the front and back of, of one page. And uh, I'm going to try to jump over to that a few times, so that when you when you attend the water baptism after church today. Uh, hopefully you'll hear these eight elements in the baptismal service. And those of you have, part of what you go through whenever you attend a wedding and whenever you attend a baptism, as the people of God, you are actually part of the covenant transaction that's going on. The minister and the people stand on behalf of God to witness the covenant and you're to renew your own covenant. Like at a wedding, you should be renewing your marriage covenant. When you listen to the vows, when you and when you hear the hum, you know the sermon and and so forth, and when you go to the reception afterwards, uh, you should be renewing your covenant, just like we renew the covenant in communion every week. That's why all Christians, until modern Christians, always practice communion every week. There were no Christians until, long, until the Anabaptists and then eventually the Evangelicals who didn't have the Lord's Supper every week in the history of the church. It's a brand new modern idea 
to only have it once a month or once a year or twice a year like many churches practice it. And it comes out of not understanding covenant and not understanding the basic approach to how you understand the Bible. And so then communion is reduced to just an empty symbol and ceremony because we, when we don't understand the Bible from the covenant point of view, then everything in the Christian life just becomes an empty symbol. And it lacks meaning, purpose, or content. And we get out of the Bible uh, strange ideas of what we think it says. Which is kind of the state of the church today. So, let's get into Roman number three there on the bottom half of the first page. List eight uh, ingredients of all covenants. First, I'm going to talk about those. I hope to do that quickly so then I can go back and re-talk about them in regard to how they apply to water baptism. But these apply to your marriage covenant. These apply to understanding the covenant God made with David and Noah and so forth. So the first thing is that in all covenants, there's an identification of the parties and a declaration of the new order. Okay, so all biblical covenants begin with God's absolute lordship his sovereignty, and his merciful grace that he's extending to the people he's chosen. That's why even covenant theologians today, many of them misunderstand the, the covenant with Adam or the dominion covenant or the covenant of Eden and call it a covenant of works because they don't understand. All covenants have requirements for obedience, and all covenants have, have sanctions, that is, blessings for obedience and, and chastisements, uh, sanctions, consequences of disobedience. And the covenant God made with Adam was a covenant of grace. God, he, God graciously chose Adam. He couldn't have chose himself because he wasn't created yet. <laughs> and uh, if he had wanted to find a helpmate suitable for him, he wouldn't have been able to find one. So God also created the marriage covenant. And so forth. So uh, God always starts with who he is. Now, all... The whole Bible takes the forms of literature in ancient Egypt and ancient Mesopotamia and so forth, and it uses kind of the outer shell of those forms to turn the message 180 degrees and turn it exactly around. So all the covenants, of all the uh, ancient literature called cosmogenic birth of the cosmos literature of ancient cultures start with in the beginning there was water because water is a universal symbol of chaos and the bible starts with in the beginning was god and the spirit of god was hovering over the waters because the ultimate principle is god in his order and his creation whereas the pagans think the ultimate principle is chance and evolution and chaos and that's in the very first line of the bible Right, So God is declaring who he is and that he is the creator of the order of the universe and that nothing is left to chance. And there's no such thing as luck or fortune or whatever. Everything is subject to God's eternal decree and purpose. And he sovereignly intervenes in everything. Uh, if you begin to understand this, you get to the point, I always joke, I'm, I'm believing the sovereignty of God so much, if I fall down the steps, I just say, thank God that's over with, what's next? <laughs> you know? You know. Um, so, 
God grants covenant, and these are all, the covenants of the Bible are actually based on the ancient covenants of ancient cultures that the Hittites had and the Egyptians and so forth, and they're called Susandry covenants. And in a Susandry covenant is actually the basis for what became in feudal Europe the Lord Vassal Covenant. The, this, the sovereign says, I'm a, I conquered you, I own you, I rule you, and I'm a benevolent dictator, so I'm going to give you this. But the actual Susandry covenants of the, of the pagan kingdoms and their totalitarian governments, that was just all a farce because he was a harsh lord. But we've actually in Christ been conquered by a redeeming, gracious, loving Lord who's forgiven our iniquities and who is the only one who can make us faithful servants of the covenant. Because we all covenants are destined to the covenant recipients failing in the covenant, except God himself is the one who, who succeeded in our covenant. That's the whole point of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Secondly, there's hierarchy. I can't develop these as much as I'd like to. Uh, those of you who went through the right state thing got to hear this stuff for uh, two hours times nine weeks. So I can't, I can't uh, you know, compete with that right now. Um, in hierarchy, God always appoints leaders as, as the representatives of his covenant, and your obedience to him is your obedience to the leadership he sends in your life. Jesus said when they were rejecting him, you won't see me again. In other words, you can't perceive me again until you can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I uh, had the joy when I was 17 years old of something every teenage boy would hate. My mother was blessed as he who comes in the name of the Lord often, which was not, uh, you know, like what teenage boy wants his mother to teach him how to cast out demons and so forth. Uh, I was, uh, you know, like ready to go live on, at college. <laughs> but... Thankfully, she taught me many things about the Holy Spirit and casting out demons when I first became a Christian, and so forth. There's always hierarchy, and your response to God is your response to who he brings into your life. And part of Satan's goal is to get you thinking you should obey the wrong people. Like, when you're a grown-up, you, you know you should obey God, his word, his church, your boss, every sphere has its proper authority and its improper authority. Your boss has the right to tell you what time to be at work, what kind of attitude to have, uh, how to treat the customers, and how to go about your work. He or she does not have uh, the right to tell you what to do when you're home and whether you could, should read your Bible or not. And parents have a legitimate authority up to a point, but not when you start to be a grown-up and start to be called of God and so forth then it becomes a manipulation, controlling witchcraft thing. You have to release people unto the sphere of government. As pastors, we can only exercise the authority that's clearly scriptural. I can't tell you to do something that's not scriptural because I wouldn't have any authority and you shouldn't obey that. All hierarchy is always under God. I recommend you read the book Spiritual Authority by Watchman Nee. That's one of our basic beginning books that everyone should have read. Is that even on the 12 foundational book list or not? Not on it, but it, it's uh, cer certainly up there in rank of, of a very good book to read. 
All covenants have ethical laws. The central section of the covenant defines how God's people are to live so that they can be his set-apart nation. Leviticus 19.2, which is quoted by 1 Peter in 1.16, says, You shall be set apart, holy, for I am holy. So for a Christian not to be a holy is for a Christian to be in disobedience. And all, uh, all covenants have oaths publicly made before God and man. That's why there's vows. That's why today, when John does this, uh, he'll be saying things like, do you renounce Satan and all the power of evil in your life in the world? And those getting baptized or their, their parents will say, I do renounce them. Who is your Lord and Savior? Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. You're making a covenantal vow. Uh, So-and-so, will you be a faithful member of this congregation and through worship and service to seek to advance God's purposes here and throughout the world? And you'll say, I will, and I ask God to help me. Do you promise to instruct your children in the truth of God's word and instruct yourself in the truth of God's word and the way of salvation through Jesus Christ and so forth? All covenants have vows. That's why it's like part of the modern anti-God, secular humanistic culture is more and more you see couples writing their own vows and they become kind of flighty and subjective. I promise to feel good about you all the time and to never put the toilet seat down you know, or, or, or up or whatever. And I mean, you, get, you hear like the craziest things. And uh, the reason we have the vows we use is they're a blend of the major points that every Christian group throughout the 2,000-year history of the church has used. That's why they're a little long, but, but they're very serious. Because God defines marriage. You don't. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we don't define what it is. If you think that, you'll just take it once a month or once a year. But the Lord said, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And all early Christians did it at least the first day of the week. And additionally, at other times, like home group meetings or special groups or whatever. Ceremonies and celebration. All biblical covenants are sealed with ceremonies. And they have three types of ceremonies. Ceremonies of enactment which is what water baptism is, a ceremony of renewal, which is what, and, re, and of remembrance, which is what the Lord's Supper is. In marriage, the ceremony of enactment is called the wedding. And that's why the most important ingredients in the wedding are the vows in a sermon by a qualified minister who really knows the scriptures, who's giving you an exhortation from God for your wedding. So... Uh, and all covenants are sealed with these ceremonies. And that all the ceremonies always involve a covenant meal, a supper, or a feast. That's why people don't understand, like in Genesis 1.26, when God uh, starts by saying, let us make man in our image, in the image of God, and so forth, and he says, let them rule, he's giving them the dominion of covenant, that God is supposed to be a vice regent, I mean, man is supposed to be a vice regent under God, extending his rule from the Garden of Eden out through the four rivers to the ends of the earth, which was God's purpose and so forth. The very next thing it says is God made every kind of food. 
And I, nobody ever talks about that because nobody knows how to read the Bible in a covenant way. That food was for man to make covenant with each other before God and with God. When you, when you eat, don't just eat with anybody. Eating is a very sacred thing. I take it very seriously, as you can see. <laughs> as because of my commitment to this church, today, today we have 120 or more hamburgers <laughs> at the picnic, and we have five different kinds of things you can put on a hot dog bun. We have regular meat hot dogs, all beef hot dogs, bratwurst, kielbasas, and Polish sausage. And I, as a duty before God, I tried five different ones of those yesterday <laughs> just to make sure they were going to be great for all of us today. <laughs> what, I took one for the team. <laughs> Logan helped me, and so did my wife. <laughs> you have to have an enabler, you know. All right. So, <laughs> so I tried two Polish sausages, two kibasas, and one bratwurst. But I had them for lunch and dinner at two different football games. Praise God. All right, so uh, <laughs> it was very covenantal. Uh, I was making covenant with Logan. Uh, <laughs> all right, so uh, every covenant has signs and symbols and seals. Biblical covenants have boundaries stipulated by ethical laws but they're also depicted in the symbolism of the covenant. That's why Christian symbols like Alpha Omega and the Cairo and so forth have been important in Christianity from all, from all eternity. You know, that's why we have things like a cross. It's a covenant symbol of what enacted the covenant. Sanctions, that means there's promised blessings and promised curses or chastisements. Uh, in, in all the covenants up to the new covenant, there was the possibility of being cursed and removed from the covenant. In the new covenant, there's the possibility of being removed from the church or whatever. But God uh, will not give up on you. He will chastise every son he receives. And so what a lot of people don't recognize, a lot of people today are under various kinds of chastisement from the Lord in their health or their... And this does not mean that someone's going through something difficult is under chastisement from the Lord. You, you know, do not judge that or evaluate that when you, when you don't have responsibility for the, for the person. But often God is taking people through sanctions, chastisements with their jobs whether they get promoted or fired with, uh, with, their, with their health, with their finances, all sorts of things God is actually trying to get your attention with. God is, God, that does not mean there aren't difficult trials and crosses in the Christian life and that we don't need to have a theology of suffering and that if you're like obedient, you'll always be blessed. That doesn't work that way. But there is a realm that as you progress into the center of God's heart, will, and ways, and as your life becomes more con conformed to his spirit and his law and his ways, there is a realm where your life becomes progressively blessed, vocationally, financially, uh, emotionally, in uh, terms of the quality of your marriage, uh, the, the spiritual health of your children, etc. 
all your walking with God in full obedience has impacts on all of that. And that's why, uh, you know, what most people have not come to expect, it's amazing how many Christians are having to be sent to counselors and, and taking various kinds of medications and everything for their health. God wants to set you free from all that. That doesn't mean you should beat up on yourself or be condemned if, that, if you're experiencing any of that. It means you should have hope that as you walk with God and get the right kind of counsel and the right kind of study and, and confess the right kinds of sins and, and et cetera, that, you, that there's a realm where these things are going to be better. So, and that can be everything from struggling with shyness. Some of the, you know, like I, one of the, my greatest joys in life is some of the shyest guys I saw come to Christ in our ministry in 1979 through 90, 90, 82. Well, even through 92. You wouldn't know today they were ever shy. Some of the people who had the worst direction vocationally and were under like all kind of financial pressures or emotional problems. You wouldn't know that today. If I told you what I was like before I was a Christian, I hope you wouldn't be able to believe it. Not only was I a drug dealer and so forth, but I lived in the constant fear of what other people thought of me. I couldn't love you if I still had that. If God hadn't set me free from that bondage, how could I be your pastor? Because I have to tell you things you don't want to hear every day. <laughs> right? That's what it means to love somebody. Love means to speak the truth in love and to say, I love you, and I'm, it's not about like feeling shamed or condemned, but I want to challenge you to go to a better place. I want to teach you to walk in the truths of God's word. God has a better life than what you know right now. He has a much better life for you. That doesn't mean he doesn't love you on the way. Because actually we've become a whole culture that thinks any kind of con confrontation or chastisement or s sanctions or punishments is, is the opposite of love. So we, like we're, we are very bad at raising kids in our day and age because we don't know how to kind of say, I really love you. I'm committed to you. I'll never stop loving you. It's unconditional. There's nothing you can do to lose my affection. And you're never going to get that C or D on that report card again because I love you enough that I'm going to beat it out of you in Jesus' name. And, <laughs> or whatever the case might need. That's only for when they're little. Uh, obviously, you cannot spank children after about age 10 or 12. That would be very ungodly. So, uh, but you can still ground them <laughs> up until a certain age. And uh, so... And these things are all through the scriptures. There was even a provision if you had raised a son that was totally rebellious all the time to take him before the elders of the city and excommunicate him from the city. Succession. That's very important. The covenant always focuses on the heirs of the covenant. God intends for the covenant to continue from generation to generation. And this involves why we believe in infant baptism, to be honest. Uh, it involves the concepts of adoption, because adoption is all about who is worthy to, to hand down the covenant to. Uh, you know, I, I'll tell you this, that 
my, who, are, who I consider to be my sons and daughters have nothing to do with my biological sons and daughters. I'm fortunate enough that some of my biological sons and daughters are my spirit, best spiritual sons and daughters, namely my son John and his wife and my son Jason and his wife. And uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, Anvesh is more my son than some of my other sons. I got hundreds of sons. No. <laughs> They're all over the place. But, uh, <laughs> and uh, making disciples is all about covenant succession, and it's about passing down the blessings of the covenant to the next generation. You know, we've kind of developed into this professional pastor idea where, you know, we just do professional religious servants, but the main thing a pastor does is shepherd one person at a time into sonship or daughtership, into the full blessings of God in their life. Everything God wants for them. So let's flip over to the back side and let's reply then in the remaining 10 or 15 minutes I have the eight ingredients of all biblical covenants to water baptism. In terms of identifying the parties, you'll notice in John's ceremony today that he does for us, thank you John, uh, and that he's taken mostly from England and Presbyterian sources. Um, you'll notice that each candidate is presented by name. And they're baptized into the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. The parties of the covenant are identified. And Jesus in the scripture is actually read as part of the ceremony. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's that. John will actually read that scripture today. Go therefore and make altar call decisions of all nations. The reason that's so, such an, uh, an abomination is because that's, that is not what God, that, that has nothing to do with sonship. That has nothing to do with covenant succession. I've been your father when you pass me in the Lord. I am so thankful that there are guys like John and Jason and other guys in this church that are, that are ahead of me in so many ways in the things of God anymore. Try having a wife as, as godly as mine. You can't get away with nothing. <laughs> you know? uh, so, um, then John actually will read from Acts 2, 36 through 39. He'll actually only read verses 38 and 39. But, when, you know, the, the point of, John, of the whole sermon is that he, t he tells Israel... You were expecting the Messiah, the Christ. You were expecting God with us. And Jesus, God has made it, when it says he made him both, doesn't mean he, because he always was. It mean, it, the Greek actually means he made it evident that, that Jesus Christ is both Lord, Yahweh, Emmanuel, God with us, and he's Christos. That you were expecting this guy, and when he came, your religious paradigms were so far off of your, in your fundamentalist interpretations of Scripture that you killed him. I honestly believe Jesus would not be welcome in the majority of churches in our America today, especially every kind, <laughs> especially all the kinds. Uh, I honestly believe that. So, 
you know, when Ananias confronted Paul in Acts 9, was sent to Paul to, to pray for him and so forth, Paul later tells the story three times to Felix and, and different people and to the Galatians. And in Acts 22, when he's recounting it, he says that Ananias said, Why do you delay? Get up and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. Baptism is about his name. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. And it's about him washing away your sins. That's the covenant ceremony. It's a washing Hierarchy, again, Matthew 28 says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and all covenant ceremonies have elders and people on purpose. That God, Jesus Christ gave, Ephesians 4 tells us that Jesus gave gifts to the church, and the gifts were apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, so that we could be equipped to do the work of the ministry. Today, that what ministry is, is uh, I invite my friends to church and hope the professional people can get them. The, the, the shepherds and teachers, the elders, are supposed to equip you to know how to lead people to Christ, make disciples, cast out demons, heal the sick, teach them about finances, teach them how to have a good marriage, teach them how to raise their children, and everything that, he, that God addresses, which is everything in life. You're supposed to teach them how to do life. That's what it means to make a disciple. You know, you're supposed to be, like Paul said, if you, if you the things you've heard and learned and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I would encourage you to consider whether you should even be doing much evangelism. Like I always get people tell me, oh, we got to get out there and save everyone and so forth. And I'm saying, I first want to get you like following God's ways in, in some parts of your life. Because they'll become exactly what you are. Every seed brings forth its own kind. If you're only spiritual at the meetings, but at home you're not really living it, that's how you'll reproduce. That's who you'll reproduce. God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. And the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them because they keep watch over your soul. I'm amazed how many people tell me all the time, this happens in our church frequently, the Holy Spirit told me this, and it's something directly contradictory to scriptures and what wise counsel has told them. <laughs> the Holy Spirit has told me in other words, I, my sense of what the Holy Spirit's saying trumps Scripture and trumps the leadership, of, the plural, plural leadership that God has raised up, ordained, and borne witness to by other men of God and so forth. And, but my interpretation of what the Holy Spirit's saying trumps all that. I get that all the time. And then I go home and cry. <laughs> so... In the baptismal ceremony today, not only is all authority in heaven and earth been given to Jesus, but notice that in Acts 2, the first thing the apostles said was repent, be baptized, and so forth, as those scriptures will be read today. Now, um, 
this whole thing of every ceremony has enactment, renewal, remembrance, covenant, members, and feasts. I might as well deal with this. There's an attack on the whole idea of celebration today uh, in, in, uh, in the whole uh, grape juice thing. I might as well risk you hating me. <laughs> but, you know, the first Christians who thought of having grape juice instead of wine happened in the 3rd century, and they were called Gnostics. They weren't actually Christians. They were a false cult or a false religion. And they, and the, they said, well, we think that the material world God created is not good and perfect, Therefore, since even though God created wine to make man's heart glad, the Psalms say, and God created wine to celebrate with, we uh, are too holy for all that. <laughs> so we should, you know, abandon all beer and alcohol and so forth. No Christians ever believed that until after the Civil War in America with the Women's Christian Temperance Movement, and it was part of the evangelical culture embracing Gnosticism. The reason we use the church history book we use is because he does a lot to help us see Gnosticism in the first few centuries and how modern expressions of Christianity are increasingly Gnostic. That is their, their, their Neoplatonic, their, their running from our own humanity. Like, I don't want to enjoy food, and I don't want to, you know, I'm going to try to hide from my, you know, need for money and career and vocation, and I'm going to hide from my sexuality, and I'm going to hide, and everything in life is, like, bad. And only the spiritual things are good. Lots of spiritual things are very wicked. Drugs will take you right into a spiritual world. So will Ouija boards, horoscopes, and all kinds of things that are forbidden in the Scripture. Seances crossing over shows and, and all that nonsense. Now, I, when I grew up, I couldn't believe that someday we'd actually have a culture where all that stuff would be on TV all the time, but it's part of the fact that we've, the Christian, Christianity of our culture hasn't been strong enough to uh, hold on to the culture. So what we're trying to do is a rethink on everything. And some of the ideas that some of you are hearing today may be a little new, but be like the Bereans, be more noble-minded. Search the scriptures daily to see if what we're saying is so, because what we're saying is so. I wouldn't stand up here and say stuff that's wrong. I just wouldn't. I fear God too much. So, sanctions. We talked about Romans 6 and succession. Uh, I've, I've got I've to kind of start to wind down. So... Um, Here's what I want to say about Romans 6 that John read. What he's trying to say when he says, if you've been baptized into Christ, you remember John Gray read Romans 6, the whole chapter at the beginning of this message. And uh, the reason he did is this. What, what Paul is always arguing is he's saying, if we're in Christ, we've been buried with him through baptism. Through, through, we've died with him in the cross. We've been buried in the waters of baptism. And we've been risen again. So we should walk in newness of life. That's why we don't obey sin or let it reign in our mortal body. He's, what he's saying is he's trying to say, Logan, you are now from the future. Like every one of you who are in Christ and have gone through the waters of baptism, you are actually from another dimension. 
Some of you, that's easier to believe than others. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> uh, you're fr- God is eternal. He's outside and above time, and he's foreknown and predestined all things, and you have been conformed to the image of Christ's resurrection. You no longer are seated in red-padded pews in East Dayton. You are seated in heavenly places with Christ. That's where you're sitting right now. And when we worship, we're actually in the same worship meeting that's going on in Isaiah 6, in Revelation 4, Revelation 5. We're actually worshiping with tens of millions of people today. When it says the multitudes, the Greek words myriads times myriads means ten thousands times tens thousands. And if you do all the math, that's into the billions. We're joining a worship service that other billions of angelic and human creatures that have gone before us are part of, and we're part of the church eternal, and you're supposed to live your life from that perspective. And therefore, it's unthinkable that you would let gluttony or, or lust or lying or, or fear or whatever reign in your mortal body. You're not from that old creation anymore. So put it to death and don't obey it. You don't have to be slaves for obedience to the, to the sin nature anymore because it's dead. And dead men don't sin. That's what Paul's arguing is you're from, you've actually entered in covenantally into a new realm where you're an eternal high priest, faithful to God, worshiping God, knowing God, teaching his word to the masses, discipling nations, and and you're to live as part of that new humanity. That's why Paul was so upset with the Corinthians, because they were living like the old humanity, like mere men. And in Romans, he's telling us, don't do that. Live your, those of us who are, get, are, who are not getting baptized today, because we've already been baptized, he's saying, live your baptism. Use the baptismal service to renew your baptism, to realize that you are a, high, a priest, a royal people, you're not to live like anything less than royalty. And the, the kind of royalty that God creates is called servant leadership. Jesus was the ultimate royalty, born in a manger, suffering with us, identifying with us in every way except without sin. Go and do likewise. That's what we're baptizing people about today. Amen.